You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Good evening. My name is Marsha Landolt. I'm the Dean of the Graduate School, and on behalf of the University of Washington, I'm really honored to welcome all of you here for tonight's uh, Dan's lecture. We're here this evening because of a very generous bequest from the estates of Mr. John Dance and his wife, Jessie. They wanted to use the, the money that they left to the university to make it possible, and I'm going to quote from their bequest, to make it possible for us to bring distinguished scholars of national and international reputation who have concerned themselves with the impact of science and philosophy on man's perception of a rational universe. And I think our sponsor, our speaker tonight, uh, is exemplary of that, that goal. I'm really pleased to tell you that we have several members of the Dan's family with us this evening, and we're very pleased that they're here. And now I am honored to introduce tonight's speaker. Dr. Cornell West describes himself as an intellectual freedom fighter. After attending public schools in Sacramento, Dr. West went on to Harvard University, where he graduated magna cum laude. He then went to Princeton University, where he received both his master's and his PhD degrees. Dr. West returned to Princeton in 1987 as professor of religion and director of the Afro-American Studies Department. He then later moved to Harvard, where he currently serves as professor of African-American studies and philosophy of religion. Recently, Dr. West was promoted to the rank of university professor, a title that's held by only 14 out of Harvard's 2,200 faculty members. Dr. West is one of the first black scholars to be appointed to this highest university post. He has been called one of the most authentic, brilliant, prophetic, and healing voices in America today. His work, whose influences include American transcendentalism, the Baptist Church, European philosophy, 
and the Black Panthers, uh, seeks to revive the best of liberalism, populism, and democratic socialism. Dr. West has written countless articles in 15 books, including the bestseller, Race Matters. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Cornell West. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. Every politician was taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. And here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time, it's time to, to speak out. out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will be back. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, yes we, we can. can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. Definitely. Thank you very much, though. Definitely. Thank you so very much. What a blessing to be here at University of Washington, Seattle. I'd like to thank my new friend and sister, Vice Provost Marsha Landall, for those very kind and generous remarks. I'd like to thank my new friend and sister Yvette Fields for not only picking me up at the airport and engaging in such high quality conversation, but being so warm and hospitable, and similarly so for Sister Essence Pierce. I had a wonderful dinner just a few minutes ago, and I met Brother Kip Shoke, who read a powerful poem happened to be the grandson of my masterful Sunday school teacher. <laughs> Shiloh Baptist Church in Sacramento, California, named was Sarah Ray. We wrestled with the book of Job that would make both Jung and Kierkegaard proud. <laughs> Carolee Dance was, was there, and we thank her so very much for both her family's generosity as well as her deep concern about the quality of intellectual life here at University of, of Washington. 
And as you can imagine, I do have a few friends here. I've got to say something about the brilliant young philosopher, Professor Paul Taylor, who's a very good friend of mine. I don't know whether he's here, but if he is, when you see him, give him a hug for me because he has not just great promise, but already exemplified much of it. Professor John Taves, I always mention when I come to Seattle because I was a pupil of his back in 1973 under the great H. Stuart Hughes in his course, European Intellectual History. John Taves was my teaching assistant. And uh, he means much to me, and I'm told that he's been here many, many, many years. And I'm sure some of you know of him. Please tell him hello as well. And similarly so for Brother Charles Johnson, that masterful writer and teller of tales. Last but not least, I cannot come to Seattle without mentioning the great Jacob Lawrence. The great Jacob Lawrence. We miss him so. We miss him so. And I think it's appropriate in talking about race matters to keep in mind the role of the courageous artists, and that's why I begin on a Socratic note. I hope that I say something that thoroughly unsettles you. <laughs> that's what we're here for. Not proselytizing, not advertising. We're here to be unnerved, maybe even for an instant unhoused. I cannot conceive of talking about any evil, any form of unjustified suffering and unnecessary social misery, any form of undeserved harm or unwarranted pain without talking about the need for courage. And what I love about Socrates is flat nose and pot belly, <laughs> pop eyes, supposedly ugly in this public space of Athens is that he went about trying to raise very painful questions, the queries that we'd rather not ask but know we cannot sidestep or hold at arm's length. The unexamined life is not worth living. You all know that better than most at University of Washington. Elite institutional higher learning fundamentally committed to the quest for true small t knowledge, small k. Plato, the apology in line 38a says the unexamined life is not the life for the human being. But Malcolm X added on the corner of 125th Street and 7th Avenue, <laughs> the examined life is painful. And who will muster the courage to use and deploy their crit critical intellect? And I didn't say intelligence, I said intellect. Because Richard Hofstadter is right in his classic anti-intellectualism anti in America of 1963. America praises intelligence, but fears intellect. It's a business civilization. It's a market-driven civilization. Who has time to wrestle with the frightening question? And of course, race, the vicious legacy of white supremacy, has been for so long a dogma in American history. We hit it hard in 1861. We hit it again in the 1960s. But for the most part, 
it's still one of those tacit assumptions and presuppositions we'd rather sidestep and hold at arm's length. Quest for self-knowledge. What kind of person are you and I really? What kind of community, what kind of nation are we really? Do we have the courage to look ourselves in the mirror candidly, critically, honestly, and acknowledge the underside, the night side of ourselves, the human predicament, American democracy, the world? William Butler Yeats is right when he says it takes more courage to dig deep into the abyss of one's own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. And you can't talk about race and race matters and diversity without wrestling with the legacy of white supremacy in which it takes such tremendous courage to think critically about ourselves. That race is not some ghettoized peripheral issue has to do with the quality of persons that we think we are, the quality of American society that we think we are, and in the end, the quality of the species, humanity as a whole. Now, I'm sure many students here at this grand university will never forget those moments in which you look closely at your assumptions and presuppositions and recognize that your worldview rests on pudding. That's one of the differences between education and credentialization. That's one of the differences between acknowledging change, transformation, metamorphosis as a result of critical thinking and critically engaging the underside of who you are, the underside of American democracy. And yet at the same time, we recognize that it's so easy to fall back into those habits of thinking and expectation and orientation, business as usual. Now granted, Socrates, like Jesus, never wrote a word, and I don't encourage that for undergrads or graduate students here. <laughs> University of Washington, write your papers, put forward your nuanced formulations and sophisticated interpretations, adduce your evidence, draw your valid conclusion. I hope your professors understand the argument. <laughs> it is not really true, of course. Socrates did write at the very end of his life in prison the hymn to Apollo and versified the fables of Aesop. He began to take seriously that voice that he heard throughout his life. Socrates practiced music. Socrates practiced music. Maybe you need some art to free you from the tyrannical rule of reason that you think results in the level of self-mastery and control that allows you to control those deep appetites. What's fascinating about Socrates, and it's pointed out by Leo Strauss in his 1958 lectures at University of Chicago on the problem of Socrates, Socrates laughed once. If we take seriously the four sources that render the agent of Socrates. Plato's dialogues, profound, often unpersuasive. Xenophon's less profound but fascinating dialogues. Of course, the satirical depiction of Socrates in the clouds by Aristophanes, and of course, Aristotle's cold and disinterested analysis of Socrates' views. But he laughed once when he was asked, 
how should we bury you? And he said, anyhow, if you can catch me. <laughs> but that's interesting to me. He laughed once, and not only that, but we never find that he wept as much as once. No tears. Married to Xanthippe, three sons, no tears. As important as thinking critically is in relation to wrestling with the legacy of white supremacy. The Socratic embodiment of the legacy of Athens is a necessary but not sufficient condition for wrestling with race. And that's why I take seriously the legacy of Jerusalem. Jeremiah wails and Elijah cries and Jesus weeps because they love so deeply, they care so much. And we will never be able to come to terms with race matters unless we confuse a spirituality of genuine questioning, interrogating, scrutinizing, pushing ourselves against the wall, but at the same time allowing tears to flow precisely because one has to open one's soul and acknowledge one is not always in control. Some passion, some connection to something bigger than oneself, to situate oneself in a story larger than oneself, to be able to locate oneself in a narrative grander than oneself, break out of the egocentric predicament. Exactly. They acknowledge that reality of the other, capital O, that Levinas, Simone Weil, Dostoevsky, and Ellison, and Toni Morrison encourage us to do. How do we bring together the spirituality of genuine critical questioning with the spirituality of genuine compassion and service to others? And by spirituality, I'm not talking about some ephemeral phenomenon. I know in the academy, when people talk about spirituality, they think of New Age and a whole host of other popular phenomena. But no, by spirituality, I mean self-involved and self-invested struggle that takes us outside of our own self and connects us to others' ideals, causes, movements, social momentum. And of course, I could simply provide a grand example of that spirituality of critical questioning and spirituality of deep love and compassion by turning on John Coltrane's Love Supreme and just sit down. <laughs> just shut my mouth. I'll read a chapter, Toni Morrison's Beloved. I keep track of that American Hamlet, Blanche Dubois, the streetcar named Desire, that white blues brother born in Columbus, Mississippi, named Tennessee Williams. Meaning what? Meaning that as artists, they exemplify both the Socratic moment on the one hand, but also the prophetic moment on the other. Condition of truth is to allow critical intellect to be displayed and enacted condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. That sits at the center of the struggle for freedom and especially the struggle for freedom of people of African descent. 
two fundamental questions that sit at the very core of that struggle. And of course, it's always a tradition of struggle that says, whosoever will, let him or her come, if you're willing to pay the cost. If you're willing to make a fundamental decision to keep track of the humanity of each and every one of us, whatever the evil, white supremacy, male supremacy, vast economic inequality, national arrogance, class haughtiness, Losing sight of humanity, disabled people, elderly, gay brothers, lesbian sisters. This is not cheap PC chit chat. We're talking about historical challenges. When I think back to Harriet Tubman's and Ida B. Wells Barnett's, A. Philip Randolph's, Martin King's, Fannie Lou Hamer's. White brothers like Miles Horton, I'm sure they have his autobiography, The Long Haul, in this glorious library here. Hope has been checked out repeatedly. Lydia Maria Child, a white sister that wrote appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans in 1833, responding to the great David Walker's appeal of 1829. They're wrestling with, first, the question of what does it mean to be human? especially in light of a vicious of white supremacy in which people's humanity is perennially called into question, interrogated, has to be proven, never taken for granted. Told they have the wrong hips and lips and noses and hair texture and skin pigmentation and the world begins to believe. Told they're less beautiful, less intelligent, less moral. Rationalizations for subjugation and subordination. Enslavement, Jim Crow, Jane Crow, discriminated against. Not solely as victims, our right-wing brothers and sisters are wrong. Never solely as victims. The victimization has been in place, but the sense of agency has always been exercised and enacted. When you look at the best of the struggle for freedom in the midst of this American civilization that presupposed that it was the exemplar of freedom and liberty. What does it really mean to be human? Now you all know from your classes here that the English word human derives from the Latin humando, which means burying. Burying, I like to remind professors of humanity about that. <laughs> you know, you are the ones into those bodies in the coffin those bodies that are now the culinary delight of terrestrial worms. Yes, why? Because at that particular moment, the three dimensions of time are brought together, past, present, and future, especially in a civilization so obsessed with futurity, but shuns the past. And views the future as simply a repetition of the present. And doesn't want to view that future as qualitatively different forcing us to interrogate the most fundamental and basic institutional and structural arrangements, just everybody fitting in, even as things become more colorful among the middle and upper middle classes and well-to-do, but the class hierarchy still in place. Their imperial policy still in place, oftentimes, though not always. What does it really mean to be human? Well, you see, when you actually look at the history of spirituals, oh, Lord, how come I born here? 
so suffer clean and insight. Or the blues, or jazz, or rhythm and blues, and yes, even a little hip hop too. They remind us that we are fundamentally two-legged, linguistically, two-legged. Let me, put, let me say that again. I want, I want you to get this point. <laughs> I want you to get this point. That we are fundamentally two-legged, featherless, linguistically conscious creatures born between urine and feces. You see, that's the discourse of the funk in the history of black freedom. Not something to be laughed at. You see, when Ezra Pound said that Walt Whitman is an, an exceeding stench, but he is America, and he's from Idaho, you know, he said it in London. Black folks say, no, you think the stench and the stink is where you start. No. We start with the funk. We start with the raw history, the raw reality, and the mortality denied by most of American culture and civilization. That we are a people who have been on intimate terms with forms of death in the most death-denying, death-ducking, and death-dodging of all modern civilizations. The mainstream may go sentimental, and talk about purity and he or she who is pristine and opt for the happy ending, but we start with slavery, a form of social death in the midst of this death-denying civilization. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult to talk about race and the legacy of white supremacy, one of the reasons why we usually have to re wait for a catastrophe and crisis to hit before we wrestle with the issue head on, it's because we live in such a shallow and hollow culture that is so obsessed with comfort and convenience and contentment, they don't want to deal with the funk. They don't want to deal with the raw reality. They don't want to deal with the, the darkness that is shot through, not just America, but every civilization. No accident that Disneyland and Disney World bragged that no one has ever died on their premises. Quintessentially American. <laughs> Nobody died. Is there life there? No, it's just fun. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the great Heisecker in his book of 1939, Homo Luden, says fun was a term constructed and concocted in America. What a privilege and spoiled folk to think that somehow they can make it through history and not confront the tragic and comic dimensions of the world. Remain sentimental, skate through history in the form of what? Absolute denial for the most part of the forms of death. It's no accident the US Constitution doesn't even refer to slavery, slaves, or Negroes. And you've all seen Joseph Ellis's new book, Founding Brothers. It's on the bestseller list. Surprise me, America's a strange place. Because <laughs> it's a serious book, and you don't usually see serious text on that list. <laughs> Take a look at that chapter three called The Silence and the Consensus of the Founding Brothers 
to not come to terms with the petition of the Quakers to deal with slavery. Sidestep it. Overlook it. 22% of the inhabitants of the 13 colonies enslaved Africans. But somehow think that as Malcolm used to say, the chickens won't come home to roost. That history won't haunt you. The same is true in the discourse of innocence. America is unique among modern nations to believe that it began with innocence. <laughs> F.O. Matheson, the towering Harvard literary critic and Christian socialist and gay brother who taught it in Cambridge for 42 years, used to begin many of his lectures by saying, would America be unique among modern nations to, be, to move from perceived innocence to corruption without a mediating stage of maturity? <laughs> That's a serious question. You might grow old and you might grow big, but when will you grow up? Race is a litmus test, not just for justice, it's a litmus test for maturity. Peter Pan mentality, young forever. No history, no time, no mortality. Selective memory. And yet we know 1861, we fight a war over an institution not even invoked in the Constitution. 13th Amendment refers to an institution not even alluded to in the Constitution. Mendacity. Hypocrisy. So, oh, Brother West, you're a little hard on America. It's a much more complex place than that. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. First 72 years of the Republic, 49 years, were headed by presidents who were slaveholders. The only presidents reelected during that period were slaveholders. The majority of Supreme Court were Southerners, most of them slaveholders. Very complicated democracy. Seneca put it so well when he said that he or she who learns how to die unlearns slavery. Montaigne says to philosophize is to learn how to die. Plato has Socrates say philosophy itself is a meditation on in preparation for death. Because to live critically, intensely, and abundantly is to confront forms of death. You can't produce spirituals in the blues. Sarah Vaughn or Curtis Mayfield without wrestling with the legacies of forms of death with which people of African descent have had to wrestle with. Not the only ones, I'm just using this one example because there's such an exemplary group in this regard. 1861, war. And I think about the discussion these days about the flag in South Carolina and Mississippi. And I say to myself, my God, what an impoverished discourse to think that that flag is fundamentally about black pain on the one hand and the valor of white soldiers and the Confederacy on the other. Nobody wants to say it, but it was about the possible death of American democracy. It was the violent, organized insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government. And that's not the Black Panther Party, that's the Confederacy I'm talking about. <laughs> had to do with notions of democracy and citizenship. It's not just about black folk over here and white southerners over there. 
you didn't even hear it articulated because our imagination when it comes to race is so eviscerated. The denial is still so much at work that it's just about responding to the psychological sensitivities of this group and the psychological sensitivities of this group. No, no. Race has been, we know, not just the most explosive issue, not just the most difficult dilemma, not just America's rawest nerve. It has the capacity to ring down the curtain on American democracy. It almost did. And it may almost again. Every chocolate city is a ticking time bomb. Cincinnati is just a peak of an iceberg. Just a peak of an iceberg. We'll debate later. Meaning what? For four years, 620,000 people dead. Over what? Legacy of white supremacy in the form of a slaveocracy. More Union soldiers dead than all American soldiers in World War II each life pressure. That's how deep it cut. We didn't even raise the question of what it means to be a citizen in a democratic republic in any systematic way until we raised the question, what are we going to do about these ex-slaves? What is their status? That's how deep it cut. That's how integral. That's how constitutive race has been and is in the American past and present. But it's so easy to push it to the side and think that somehow the rich promise and possibility of American democracy can be enacted without confronting that legacy head on. And of course, for 12 years, America did something that was unprecedented in American history. And we see it in the development of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was very honest, of course. You recall that moment when he meets with Frederick Douglass in 1862. Frederick Douglass goes, he writes in his journal, he's the first white man I met who feels thoroughly at home with black people. Reminds you of Bill Clinton a little bit, actually. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln says what? He says, Mr. Douglass, I admire your oratoric skill. He said, but I've been living for over 40 years with my white fellow citizens, and I'm thoroughly convinced that the vast majority of them will never, ever treat the masses of black people decently and equally. And therefore, it's best for you to look for a place in Central America. New colony. Frederick Douglass says, I disagree with your conclusion, but I understand your insight. We got a major challenge if we're going to create a multiracial democracy. Part of the greatness of Abraham Lincoln, of course, is that, like Malcolm X, he was always growing criticizing himself. By 1865, he changed his mind. He said, I've decided to support the right of Negroes to vote in New Orleans, Louisiana. I think we might have a chance to create a multiracial democracy. It's going to be very, very difficult, something that even the founding fathers would not have and of course, three days later, a white supremacist with mediocre acting talent, John Wilkes Booth, with a bullet in his head because of that decision, because of that decision. 
And yet there was this grand attempt. Never in the history of the modern world had there been a shift from slave status to citizenship status. And of course, in the 1870s, we had more senators then than we do now. Lieutenant Governor of Louisiana, head of Supreme Court of South Carolina. Fascinating attempt to see whether, in fact, American democracy could become a multiracial democracy. And we're still not even dealing with vicious legacy of male supremacy, let alone class hierarchy. But to create a multiracial democracy in light of Lincoln's vision after he changed his mind. And yet by 1877, you all know the story, the Confederacy lost the war, but white supremacy won the peace. Institutional terrorism sets in. Jim Crow, Jane Crow, American barbarism. 51 years, every two and a half days, some black child, black woman, black man hanging from some tree. Strange fruit the southern trees bear that Billie Holiday sang so beautifully about. Just at the moment when America is constituting itself as a transcontinental empire with Guam and Cuba and Philippines, Hawaii, just at the moment when Europe's poor, God bless you, begin to make their way into the cheap labor markets of the United States to help facilitate the economic takeoff of the country. Legacy of white supremacy, immobilizing these people, sharecroppers, day laborers, tenant farmers, peonage, limitless debt, probably in many ways the most un-American condition, the inability to move. America's all about mobility, staying on the move, right? Emerson says everything good is on the highway. Boy, that's quintessentially American. Henry Ford even made it more explicit. These folk locked in, wrestling with civic death, no rights. Limited liberties in the land of liberty. And it would take nearly 80 years to hit the legacy of white supremacy head on. And I want to say something to young people about the 1960s. This is very important, the 1950s and 60s, because so much of the debate about race these days has to do with one's interpretation of the 1960s. And of course, the 60s cannot be understood unless it's understood against the backdrop of Jim Crow, Jane Crow, going back to 1877 to 12 years, and then of course, the 244 years of slavery in America, and the 79 years America as a democratic republic. The 60s was not a period in which the vast majority of young people were flying high in the friendly skies, obsessed with rock music at Woodstock. Though some of that certainly went on. <laughs> Cannot be denied. Nor was the 60s a time in which one man led one movement that broke the back of American apartheid. Martin Luther King Jr., who is now celebrated 
every January, oftentimes by those who not just critical of him, had deep hostility toward him in the 1960s when his body was still moving in space and time. And that's black folk as well as white and red and yellow. He was not the HNIC, the head Negro in charge, ever. He was booted out of the largest black organization in America, the National Baptist Convention. He cut against the grain in the black community. Why? Because he was against conformity. Whoso be a civil rights activist had to be a nonconformist. He called the civil rights movement the group of the maladjusted. Maladjusted to injustice and cruelty and bigotry, not well-adjusted to the status quo. And I'll say a word about the middle classes these days of all colors becoming so well-adjusted to things that they lose a sense of maladjusted consciousness, what it means to cut against the grain. He was against complacency because he was so committed. He was against cowardice because he had the courage to think critically and the courage to love and fight for justice. But the 60s was not solely about Brother Martin or even Sister Fanny. There were 329 uprisings in 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fanny had any control over that. The rage and the anger and the fury began to overflow. And there were 213 uprisings one night. And you all know the night I'm talking about. April 4th, 1968. Those bullets ripped through the precious body of Brother Martin on Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. National Guard brought out to protect the White House. Folk were going to de-whitenize it. Military occupation in one city for nine months that looked like Prague, Czechoslovakia that same spring. And I'm talking about Wilmington, Delaware. You thought I was going to say Detroit, I know. <laughs> Wilmington, Delaware, shaking the foundations of American society again, having to wait until crisis and catastrophe set in to see whether America had the intellectual, political, cultural, and economic resources to deal with this legacy. And yet it's so easy to fall back into business as usual, denial, avoidance, downplaying, and overlooking. One of the sad things about race matters in America is, is that it's a national spectacle anytime you talk about the plight and predicament of indigenous brothers and sisters, people of African descent, and women all need national legislation or acts of the court. And there's been vicious forms of discrimination against Jewish brothers and sisters, Catholic brothers and sisters, and so on, but never needing national focus and limelight. And anytime you have national focus and limelight, people begin to think it's preferential treatment. Why are you talking about them and not me? I say, no, white working class brother, we know you have pain. 
We know it's difficult to gain access to a job with a living wage. We know you have tremendous difficulty gaining access to health care and child care. But we're asking you to confront the most powerful, not scapegoat the most vulnerable. You see? We're asking you to simply say, there are ways of understanding your pain in such a way that you don't respond in a cowardly manner. I tell this to Brother Rush Limbaugh all the time. Well, not personally, but <laughs> publicly. I say, Brother Rush, we know who your social base is. These white brothers have been wrestling with economic decline for the last 25 years. Economic dislocation, not even viewed as human beings who are fired, they're disposable commodities who are downsized. But they look to the weak, the immigrants, the women, the gays, the lesbians, the blacks, the browns. I say, oh, just like that husband who feels so powerless on the job and goes home to beat his wife. Cowardly. Exercising power over the less powerful. You see. Saying what? Saying in part that it's so very difficult to talk about race in America, and especially the question of what it means to be human in wrestling with the forms of varieties of death in the culture. You see. Not to reinforce the worst. And that's one of the reasons why there has been and will always be a black nationalist tradition in the black community and in America. When Marcus Garvey, who led the largest mass movement among black folk to do what? To leave the country. Most of the world wants to come. Get in on the goodies. The rights, the liberties. Marcus Garvey had three million black people that said what? That said, I agree with Alexis de Tocqueville. I agree with Abe Lincoln before he changed his mind. I can't conceive of a multiracial democracy. I just don't think that the vast majority of white brothers and sisters will ever treat the masses of black people decently and equally. He said, I might have a stunted imagination, but somebody give me some evidence. That is a profound question. It's in the last chapter of Alexis de Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America, The Three Races That Inhabit This Land, that says there'll never be a multiracial democracy here. Never. And of course, it reminds me of that poignant moment six weeks before his death when Martin Luther King Jr. went to visit the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Martin turned to Elijah and said, I just think that your attempt to create a black state in Georgia and Mississippi and the panhandle of Florida and Alabama is a pipe dream. I can't conceive of it ever coming about. Elijah turned back to Martin and said, and your attempt to integrate into a burning house is a pipe dream. I can't conceive of how it will ever come about. <laughs> and tears flowed from both of their faces. That's the raw stuff of the blues. 
That's what Henry Highland Garnett had in mind when he spoke in 1843 and said, black people never confuse your situation with that of the Israelites in the Hebrew Bible. For you, Pharaoh was on both sides of the bloody Red Sea. You are people of limited options and truncated alternatives. What are you going to do? Du Bois raised the question. We've got to keep fighting. Well, in the 1960s, when Martin left the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's house and then went to see Amir Baraka in Newark, New Jersey, who was then a black nationalist, that was about his third incarnation. <laughs> he's serious about each one, though, isn't he? Boy, he's full of fire. I love my brother Baraka. I love my brother Baraka. He told Martin the same thing. And that dialogue still haunts us. Namely, as we move from the late 60s after the death of Brother Martin to the year 2001, we have seen the ways in which breakthroughs have taken place. Progress certainly has occurred, but what is the nature of that? Brother Malcolm used to say, you don't stab a man in the back nine inches and pull it out six inches and celebrate your progress. <laughs> but the progress is still real. Look at the University of Washington, all these colorful faces. People died so that this place could be more true to its quest for truth and knowledge and come to terms with its own legacy of white supremacy. And progress has been made. But is it one in which the unprecedented opportunities for the middle classes, the upper middle classes, a few of the black and brown and red well-to-do, becomes the center of attention and the plight of predicament of working class brothers and sisters, working poor brothers and sisters of all colors, very poor brothers and sisters, the increase in deep poverty, those fellow citizens who make 50% of the poverty level income, increasing. And very little attention, limelight, or preoccupation with them as their lives become more impoverished, chaotic, dislocated, deracinated, and lacerated, raw, cannon fodder for the criminal justice system that targets them with a war against drugs, very much a war on poor black and brown and white men. A doubling of the prison system in the last six years, 2.1 fellow human beings in prison. More black prisoners now than all of American prisoners five years ago. Where's the discourse? Their destiny is linked to our destiny. We're all on the same ship, and if that ship has huge leaks in it, we go up together, we go down together. Where is the democratic sensibility there? Which is to say, public interest, common good. How do we relate to each other as fellow citizens mediating our disagreements with civility and mutual respect? That's why that first question of what it means to be human is inseparable from the second that the black freedom movement is always raised. Are we serious about democratic ideals and practices? 
Or is it for the most part a lip service that we use to hide and conceal? The oligarchic, plutocratic, to some degree pigmentocratic economy? <laughs> Are we serious about the fundamental question of any democracy, which is how do we curtail the use of arbitrary power against fellow citizens? And you always begin with the most immediate form of arbitrary power, which is police power. Police power. That's the litmus test. That's the litmus test. If somehow we think that deploying arbitrary police power, I didn't say legitimate police power, and I certainly don't want to demonize policemen. <laughs> they human beings and fellow citizens, they part of working class. The salary's too low, risk too high, but too many of them trigger happy when it comes to black male bodies, brown male bodies, you see. Just reading the New York Times today, all four officers shot Brother Diallo 41 times. No discipline whatsoever. A little retraining on ethnic, ethnic sensitivity. Just in Sacramento, where I grew up, another 17-year-old black brother, tip of the iceberg. Across the board. And it affects each and every one of us as citizens. Arbitrary power deployed. Could be corporate power. Arbitrary governmental power. There I'm with the right wing brothers and sisters. I'm not for a big government out of control that has no accountability. But corporate power, often unaccountable, deploying its arbitrary power against working people. Individual power, men against women, straight against gay lesbians. That's what a democracy is. If we're serious about it, then we cast the national limelight on it. And of course, I'm not suggesting it doesn't take place at all in America. Part of the greatness of the country is there's always been a leaven in the loaf. There's always been citizens of all colors who are willing to attempt to cast a limelight on it, but they always cut against the grain, against the dominant grain. But see, democracy is more than just a mode of governance. It's a way of being in the world. It is experimental, improvisational, jazz-like. It's about fundamentally believing those who slide stone call everyday people, have a sense of the tragic and majestic and problematic shot through their lives, and they are just as valuable as elite. I say everybody is a star. Earth, wind, and fire say everybody's a shining star. <laughs> Each and every one of us, unique, distinctive, irreproducible, of value, dignity, Christian discourse in the eyes of God, in my good day. Judaic discourse, oh my good day. Islamic discourse, in my good day. Buddhists, Hindus, all have their own formulations in their prophetic form of the uniqueness of each and every one of us. 
And then, of course, James Weldon Johnson and his brother Rosamond come along and say, that's why we ought to lift every voice. And when the voices of the demos, the voices of everyday people, those who the late great James Cleveland called ordinary people, when their voices are heard, they would not choose dilapidated housing. They wouldn't choose decrepit schools, systems of education in our public life. They wouldn't choose jobs that don't provide a living wage. They wouldn't choose lack of health care or unavailable child care. Their voices must be hemorrhaged when it comes to fundamental decisions being made in the society. That's what it means of taking democracy seriously all the way down. Now, granted, there's always counter-majoritarian institutions like courts that must preserve the very conditions for the possibility of democracy, rights, liberties freedom of association, speech, and worship, yes. But who really takes democracy seriously? That's cross-color. We can look at the art form of jazz. You better find your voice. Accent your individuality in community so you can contribute to the high quality of the collective performance. John Coltrane, quit imitating Johnny Hodges. Imitation is suicide. Find your voice. Each citizen, dig deep into the precincts of your own soul and examine the suburbs of your heart and find your voice and get it out. Not just your self-interest, but your voice that balances enlightened self-interest with public interest and common good. And by voice here, I'm not just talking about votes in Florida now. Talk about that later, but that's a reductionist. <laughs> Though it's still a problem. But it's much deeper than that because, of course, when large slices of the demos feel as if their voice is not being heard, they feel helpless, impotent, they turn on themselves, they turn on each other. Every generation in wrestling with the question of what it means to be human and how one takes democracy seriously, has to accent the underside of their present moment in light of the past to ensure that the future can be a little bit better and maybe even qualitatively better than the present. We were here in 1941, three fragile democracies in the whole world. We talk about fascist forces, Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, Japanese militaristic elites crushing all democratic possibilities. So even a white supremacist democracy like America is in the eyes of most of us worth fighting for in a segregated army in which black soldiers were treated worse than German prisoners of war in many instances. America's still worth fighting. Why? Because if Hitler takes over, the whole world is niggerized, other than Germans. Open season on them, treat them anyway, subject to abusive power. This is the generation Brother Tom Brokaw so excited about, and rightly so. They met a grand challenge. We're here in 1965, break the back of American apartheid, or we slide down a slippery slope to chaos and anarchy because we would be at each other's throats. And young folk may take it for granted 
But there was a kind of war going on. Many, many casualties to keep alive the best of American democracy as it confronted that particular version of white supremacy. Year 2001, what are the challenges, especially for the younger generation? First, relation between race and escalating galloping wealth inequality. 1% of the population own 48% of the net financial wealth and the next 7% own another 30%. And it has been increasing over the last 15 years, be the administration Democratic or Republican, both beholden to disproportionate amount of corporate influence, transnational corporate influence and domestic corporate influence. No serious discussion about it, the sacred cow of American democracy being economic growth by means of corporate priorities. And if we don't keep that growth going by means of corporate priorities, the very conditions of America st American stability go under. And we've seen what? Real hourly wages of working people increased 4% over 20-some years, and CEO salaries increased 425%. CEO salaries for the Fortune 500 companies, 925%. Now, between 1975 and 1973, corporate profits go up, wages went up. Why? A contract had been made, a consensus had been reached, a workers' movement in place that ensured high levels of productivity, workers can get in on it. It snaps in the 70s. It's now corporations mean and lean for stockholders and workers trying to adjust the best way they can. That's why we have 6.5 million fellow citizens who work for 6.5 million fellow citizens of moms and dads who work four jobs between the, those two. Four jobs in one family. Don't receive a penny from the federal government. Frugal, thrifty, deferring gratification, but still making very little progress. Hardly any talk about them at all. And of course, on an international level, my God, one individual has wealth equivalent to the bottom 48 countries. And that individual is no longer in Seattle. We got a new one now. Brother Bill Gates always struck me as a highly generous brother. I've never met him before. He gives quite generously in the form of philanthropy. And philanthropy is a very rich tradition in America, but we must never confuse charity with justice. Charity is much better than no charity. Don't get me wrong. And even the well-to-do are human beings who make choices and decisions that can have positive effects. No finger pointing a name calling a pigeonholing, let alone demonizing. But we're talking about structures and institutions 
The top 100 individuals have wealth equivalent to the bottom 48% of humankind, 2.6 billion human beings. Where is the discourse? It's hard to generate it. It began here in Seattle in part in terms of putting it on the national and international scene. And people may be preoccupied with some of the anarchistically inclined brothers and sisters. And I have my own critiques I can bring to bear. But they were not the only ones here in Seattle. Not at all. People concerned about corporate-driven globalization as opposed to democratically-driven globalization, mechanisms of accountability for all of the productivity and wealth being produced. Look at NAFTA now, 27% decline in Mexican workers' wages. That was supposed to be so grand and progressive. How do we measure it? Whether the economy's better. Well, what do you mean by economy here? Is it from the vantage point of Wall Street or is it from the vantage point of the workplace? And most importantly, especially the younger generation understands this better than older brothers like me. We look at American society through the vantage point of the most vulnerable children. Not just the 19% of children living in poverty across color. It's only 4% in Japan. It's only 7% in Germany, which is a country not known to be on the cutting edge of the barbaric 20th century in regard to social justice. 19%. 45% of red children. 42% of brown. 40% of black children, 100% of the future. Where's the discourse? Where's the focus? One of the things I like about George W. Bush is that at least he shifted the discourse to the plight of children in the inner city in regard to education. Couldn't get that out of Bill Clinton. He was more concerned about the swing vote. Couldn't get it out of Al Gore. He's more concerned about the swing vote. He couldn't even mention the phrase poor children. Always middle class, and he began to say working class with a little populist twist when the polls began to fall. I may disagree with George W. Bush's free marketeer responses to how you deal with that plight, but it's the focus that is so necessary. Why? Because we have never seen a generation so isolated, lonely, alienated, spiritually malnourished, suffering from spiritual malnutrition and existential emptiness in the history of the country. All you have to do is visit a public school in any, not just Chocolate City, but Vanilla Suburb too. San Diego is just the tip of an iceberg. Columbine, tip of an iceberg. Why? Families weak, communities feeble, neighborhoods transformed into hoods. And that's just not in black and brown communities. I'm talking about suburbs, too. A hood is a place where social Darwinian sensibilities are predominant in which people are obsessed with the survival of the slickest. <laughs> Preoccupied with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. 71% of high school students say they cheat regularly on exams because it's all about that American goal of success, capital S. Get over by any means. It's part of the significance of the hip hop culture. 
one of the creative breakthroughs of the last 30 years where the younger generation engages in an indictment of the older generation that says you haven't given us enough love, care, attention. You left us drifting. We have to raise ourselves. We'll create our own black CNN to provide advice and counsel as to how to grow up. Because you older folk are too preoccupied with other things, careerism, hedonism, narcissism, individualism. What an indictment. And then we get upset about gangster rap. And they say, look, what we see is the ultimate logic of this market-driven culture, obsessed with buying and spending and promoting and advertising, is the gangsterization of culture. You see? We see gangster activity in White House, State House, City Hall, church, mosque, temple. That's what we see. Now, we might be a little more raw and coarse in our forms of expression, but isn't it all about that fetish of our day, the market, which is a legal and human construct that can do good things and bad things and under various conditions, but women ascribe magical powers to it. It's all about getting over. Win the election at any cost. And that's 1996. The financial scandal. 2000, any cost. I'm here now. <laughs> Don't worry about the past. I'm here now. We moved in. What was the process? Young folks see that. No such thing as young people's behavior that's not disproportionately influenced by older people's behavior. Can a democracy survive with? such a market-driven culture in which non-market activities are pushed to the margin. And of course, the ultimate non-market activity in American culture is parenting, caring, loving, supporting, nurturing, push to the margin. And we see the results. Will the younger generation have what it takes to revitalize, regenerate, and reinvigorate the best of American democracy? That's an open question. And to talk about this through the prism of race is not to remain stuck in that prism, but to make sure we don't sidestep it, but take us to higher levels of its relation to class, gender, corporate power, patriarchal power. You all been very kind and patient. I want to bring this to an end. But I want to end on the blue note. You can see I'm not optimistic. I don't believe in optimism. I don't believe in pessimism. Black folks saying I've been down so long that down don't worry me no more, but I'll keep struggling anyway. That is not an optimistic statement nor a pessimistic statement. It's neither sentimental nor cynical. It's an expression of hope, and hope is not the same thing as optimism. Never confuse or conflate hope with optimism. Hope cuts against the grain. Hope is participatory. It's an agent in the world. Optimism looks at the evidence and see whether it allows us to infer that we can do X or Y. Hope says, I don't give a damn. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. When white brothers and sisters undergo the metamorphosis by means of critical thinking, by means of compassion, they say, I'm going to fight against white supremacy. I'm not, asking from, I'm not asking permission from anybody. I might not even be popular in the black community. I'm not asking for their permission. I'm doing it because it's right and it's just and it's moral, and I want to be that kind of person. I want that kind of society. 
I'm against heterosexism for the same reason, anti-Arab sensibility for the same reason. Why? Because that's the kind of trace I want to leave. That's the kind of legacy I want to leave behind. That's the Socratic note and the blue note coming together. It's mediated with the prophetic and the humanistic. And it says, of course, if you're a prisoner of hope, you'll be wrestling with despair. Goethe is right. He or she who has never despaired has never lived. You don't know what it is to be human if you never wrestle with despair. But never allow that despair to have the last word. And it's that effort, that sense of engagement that has kept the best of American democracy alive. Can we do it in the year 2001? Open question. It might be that the civilization is in such deep decline and decay that like Rome, it will simply begin to slowly slide down the slope. All civilizations come and go, and there will come a day when American civilization dies like every civilization. But let's hope that it doesn't take place on our watch. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. And I say to you, for those who are willing to meet the challenge, I'll be there with you because I'm going down swinging like Sarah Vaughn, Duke Ellington, and Muhammad Ali. Thank you all so very much. Stay strong. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, the world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently for letting you, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. Ask not what your country can do for you. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. You wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts for Stitcher Smart Radio, Potable, and more. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. In the making.